But I wish I hadn't been so scared that I had had the nerve to stand up and protest. Not to castigate him for what he did or to stick up for the aggrieved white people. After all, they could have stood up for themselves, called in the authorities of their god, and smote everybody in the place. But I wish I'd stood up to the man and asked him a question. So, what exactly is our thing? Hey, this is Jesse Dukes. If you're new here, it's Upper Middle Brow, a podcast in which I and my good friend Chris Bagg ramble but do not bore as we discuss great books and movies and other stuff. Stick around. Today we're talking about the second half of Paul Beatty's The Sellout. All right, let's get into it. I'm sure we could anagram that to like, you know, grow a penis, you know, like Spiro Agnew. Spiro um. Agnew. I, yeah, that's like the only anagram I know. I'm very, anagrams are just elude me. Hmm. Like that's one of the things my brain does not do very effectively. It's something that like elite Scrabble players are incredibly good at. Like yeah. that's a thing. I mean, if we, you give me bear, I can give you ear uh-huh. and B uh-huh. and R <laughs> And bear. Uh-huh. Hey, maybe I'm better than I think. Yeah, you just you just rattled off like several right off the bat. Four letter words are a little bit easier yeah. to anagram yeah. than um, than Spyro Agnew. It was Dick Cavett who came up with that one, by the way, famously amazing. on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, you've just uh, you, you've been substacking and you just put out a pretty rad uh, pretty rad article today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for reading and thanks for uh, thanks for your kind words of encouragement. It was, I substack sometimes when I have other work that I probably should be doing, and I'm like, ah, oh, that sounds boring. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to like get this thought down that I have, you know, and I'll, I mean, I, I probably spent an hour writing it and then set it aside for the rest of the day and then came back and published. But nice. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I think the line that you texted me about, I probably would not have composed it had we not been reading Paul Beatty's <laughs> The Sellout. Uh, I might have. It, it definitely feel like, his prose rattling through my brain likely, you know, sort of led me on some neural pathways yeah. to that to that particular metaphor. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty intense, like, you know, and 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 yeah, but I didn't find that sentence of yours like I didn't read it and think like, though, this is derivative of Paul Beatty. I was just yeah. like, oh, what a well-crafted sentence, like, you know, like because it did all the things. You, I mean, like a lot of Paul Beatty sentences are very well-crafted. <laughs> Um, but this one did like all of the stuff that you want in a sentence. It was effective, funny, which is always important. Um, you know, great, great admonishments from great writers. Never write something that isn't a little bit funny. Um, and, uh, and still like brisk and grammatical. So I, I really dug it. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think this is one of the things we've discovered on the show. Maybe I'll dig up the sentence so we can do a Maybe this can be our intro because it actually leads us right into Paul Beatty. Yeah. Um, Uh, We could also we could also keep it quiet and be like, the only way you can read the sentence, listeners, is if you go and (laughs) subscribe to Jesse's Substack. That's true. So but as a as a as a teaser, Uh I just I was just trying to come up in my mind, like who would sort of hold a vertical object in two hands and then kind of slowly stagger back and forth and that was that was my starting point for that particular metaphor and and i came up with some other ones um and then and and at one point 
I came up with a different age range, and I was like, "No, we got to take this up a decade." Another way, yeah, uh, it'll, exactly. It'll be fun, it'll be funnier and and more apropos. Yeah. Um, and um, and you know, it also could be like a Neil Stevenson, yeah, um, like that yeah. that moment when he's describing the storage locker that the uh, former butcher is yeah. now dead and and carved in. And at one point, he's, he just he says it is something like. A freezer roughly the size of Nebraska or or something. Yeah, like that 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 um like it's like hyperbolic hyperbole. It's it's right. so over the top. The the line that I always remember from that particular scene is about the amount of data landing in Hero's computer every uh, every mm. minute, which would roughly require crash landing a Boeing seven forty seven laden with banker boxes full of documents mm. into the U store at every minute forever. And very Stevensonian, too, with his sort of his constant awareness of the recognition of the relationship between the digital and the analog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that when you get deep enough into digital, eventually it becomes analog again. Like at some level, there, you know, there there are some atoms assembling themselves around whether it's silicon or gold or 747s and banker boxes. It's all pretty much the same thing. I know, which is so cool that like on any like eventually on any scale, it's all analog. You know, um, yeah. well, sort of like this book, like the bit like eventually this big central question of like, what is black? I think another big central question that Stevenson sort of hangs his books on is like, what is analog? What is digital? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we should get into the book. We then. should. I do want to one last little teaser. Uh, this sentence that we're talking about involves and the, the piece at large involves uh, Star Wars. <laughs> um obscure to us sport uh which is a, another sort of feature of upper middle browing um is like you know yes. we're really pretty happy when we're talking about really obscure sports um and uh, and a ve- and like sort of a visual gag well um before we move on what is the name of your substack so we can actually send people there this my substack's name is diamond shoal dispatches uh, my personal production company is diamond shoals mm. productions um, I've decided that when, if I ever get my album together of 1970s folk songs, the band name is going to be Diamond Shoals. So perhaps you're detecting a pattern yes, here. I like it. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. This is, uh, the second half of Paul Beatty's, uh, Man Booker Prize winning 2015 novel, The Sellout. And, uh, yeah, we, we talked about the first half last time and, uh, in the second half, our narrator and Hominy Jenkins, uh, a former member of the little rascals TV show, continue a guerrilla campaign to resegregate Dickens, the town that the narrator and Hominy live in. Uh, they put up a bunch of whites only signs and create a wonderfully named fictitious fake magnet school. I believe it's called like Wheaton. the Wheaton School. Um, Wheaton Academy or something like that. Uh, and that's Wheaton. Aca- and then it has this like really long magnet school. So it's something like the Wheaton Academy of Literature, the Performing Arts, Mathematics, Foreign Languages, and all other magnet categories. <laughs> or it, it, there's something. <laughs> there's a real Stevensonian or David Foster Wallace uh, like sort of quality to the. Uh, to that that particular title De- definitely and i mean and part of the joke here too is that magnet schools generally specifically specialize in one thing yeah. like that too so the whole point of a magnet school is like it's going to be it's going to have a really like private school level program 
that's going to attract a bunch of students, often as a way of kind of foiling segregation. And then it'll probably be otherwise just a pretty good school, right. you know, in addition to that. So the idea of a magnet school that's like got all the magnet programs is at that point, we're not really talking about a magnet school. We're talking about something else. And what altogether. and what sets apart this particular magnet school uh, from from the from all of the magnet schools that you just described? <laughs> Well, um, they're getting help from somebody at the local school. I think Charisma is the name of the character who's the teacher, the principal. And so she's sort of in on the joke slash prank slash social experiment uh, slash illegal segregation activity. Um, But she tells a a young, I want to say like black mother, that if she wants to go into that school, her kids have to pass a very exclusive test. And what is the test? The test is, are you white? Are you white? (laughs) Yeah, and uh, and then and uh, and then our our assistant principal uh, Charisma is also going to refuse to admit white students to right. the wonderfully named Chaff Middle School. Right, <laughs> Which, and I, I believe there's even an, an I, I I mean the the plot of this novel it can be hard to follow. Yeah, but I think it's also suggested that within the school she has segregated the Latino students from the black students, and they're now they're now both in the same school, but like taking different classes and things like that too. And according to the narrator, all the students are performing better academically. Yeah, and like all of that sort of buildup comprises like. Maybe the first like eighty percent of what we read today, um, like yeah. like we just pretty much wrapped all of like. There's not a, there's not a lot of plot no. in the second half. Um, there's there is a there is a MacGuffin, uh, which are the lost little rascal tapes. Yeah. Which um, Hominy, who I think we t- mentioned last time, has kind of enslaved himself in service of the narrator through a kind of masochistic kink. Uh, really wants to find these missing tapes um, from the little rascals who Foy Cheshire, who is the sort of uh, pandering to white people while still advancing the black cause sort of uh, character, um, the one who goes around changing um, the, uh, novels to make them sort of more acceptable, like the non-pejorative journeys of African-American uh, Jim and his young uh, Caucasian protege brother Huck, or, uh, or the and their search for the missing. I'm, I'm doing all this from memory. Their search from the missing black nuclear family yeah, unit, yeah, or the like horrifyingly titled of rice and yen, uh, which yeah, we are rice and yen is so <laughs> of which we're given happily only a few sentences where all the R's and the L's are transposed to the dialogue. Oh my god. Um, which, 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 which listener is satire? Yes, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, this, this, it is not supposed to actually be funny in that sense. Yeah, I feel like I'm deep mid digression right right now, which is very appropriate for this, for this novel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, I was getting at yeah is that this is like Hominy is becoming more insistent that he really wants these tapes back. So that becomes really the only thing that resembles a MacGuffin in this novel, and right? It's really it's like it's, the only. It's really important because like. Because Hominy has this sort of like racism kink, like he gets yeah. off on on the the racism that he experienced in his youth, and like really kind of wants to bring that back. So he wants the tapes because the tapes are supposedly like uber racist, um, and Foy is ostensibly trying to defeat racism. Um, through everything that you just said, his sort of like homogenized black intellectual manner. Um, 
he is trying to keep those tapes hidden. He, he, I mean, he's literally whitewashing everything. Yeah, yeah. And that becomes quite literal, <laughs> literal at one moment. Yeah. Um, so he, he doesn't want the tapes to get out because they're so racist. Uh, that's at right. least the, that's at least his pitch. Um, and yeah, what, uh, what happens to Foy um, at the kind of, not really. Foy goes crazy. Yeah. Um, sort of at this pit. And then I, he has a gun. I, it was a little hard to follow this scene, but one sense is that, is that he's brandishing the gun, threatening perhaps himself, threatening perhaps other people. And then, as we've already learned, our narrator's sort of role in the neighborhood is to talk down black men with guns in this sort of situation. So he begins doing that, and Foy shoots him in the gut. Yeah. Uh, and that leads to his being arrested because the paramedics and the police show up. I believe Foy is also arrested too, or there is a, a criminal case at some point. Um, that leads to the narrator being arrested, at which point the arresting officer, they're sort of looking for an excuse to arrest him. I think one senses that they're aware that he is the prankster who's been putting up the whites-only signs, and, and he's a troublemaker, they're looking for a pretense, and Hominy appears on the scene, and it's like, oh yeah, this is my slave owner right here. Um, so slavery is in fact illegal, um, and so the narrator is arrested and put on trial. The trial goes very quickly because it pretty much is immediately kicked up to the Supreme Court for reasons that don't make a lot of sense to me, and then that takes us back to our opening scene yep. of our narrator in the Supreme Court. And the the scene where the narrator is shot, I think this is important as I'm sticking this in, is basically a complete flip-flop of the attempt to desegregate schools in the South in the 50s and 60s. Uh, our, oh, that's right. Yeah, our, and that's where all of this happens. Uh, Foy is kind of there with five white students who's like the names are hilarious uh and maybe we can find yeah, it's like those. kelsey morgan melody uh, like there's just melody, yeah. there's just this like smattering of like northern european sort of suggestion like one of the names is kind of dutch and one of the, it's just yeah. it's 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 very good um and the the climax uh, wonderful digression to about like the uh the not so new republic <laughs> And their headline, like newish is, republic, uh, the newish republic. What's that? The headline is something like, "Our uh, schools, our schools denying white people their rights," or something, or something like that. And then it shows a sort of like white kid dressed in excessively exaggerated African American urban attire. Yeah. Uh, and and then there's a wonderful digression about whenever a magazine asks a question on its cover, you can you can just answer. No, <laughs> that's pretty much always the case. Um, and uh, yeah, so we end up back where we started, the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, there's some great scenes there. And the narrator actually like departs the courtroom uh, at a certain point when his when his uh, lawyer is giving this very theatrical uh, kind of performative defense, uh, sort of his closing arguments. And um we don't really find the narrator and Paul Beatty both leave the plot. <laughs> just like this, yeah. this can do fine without me. Yeah. This, I'm not needed here. <laughs> let's go back. Let's go back to Dickens and smoke some weed and watch some racist movies. And um, and that's where we end. And we've discovered that as part of the, it, it's sort. We're sort of brought right up to the moment when the narrator will either be found guilty or innocent. Um, but there's been another court case where the narrator has settled with Cheshire Foy and gotten 
the MacGuffin, gotten the Little Rascals tapes. And so that's kind of where we finish with like a house party with most of the members of Dickens there. And we end with a weather report that literally puts Dickens back on the map. And um, right. yeah, so we, we, we sort of have a happy ending insofar as like the protagonist achieves his goal. Um, but boy, what a... <laughs> What, what, I don't know if it's a Pyrrhic victory. I don't even know what, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And we don't know if he's going to be found guilty for slavery or not. Um, I don't, and there's also a very, one of the few moments that I found actually kind of touching when they're watching the racist films and they're watching it with all of his gangster friends, King Cuz, Panache, the other one whose name is like Lewis or something like that. He's got some like random just name. And they discover that young Foy Cheshire, um, who had suppressed these tapes, was also kind of pressed in the service as a child actor. And there's this moment where they're like, yeah, you know, that really explains a lot, poor guy. Yeah. And so you get, you know, poor Foy Cheshire, who's off his rocker. We understand that he and Hominy are both doing a kind of different expression of racial PTSD. It's manifesting in almost opposite ways, but it's really coming from the exact same yeah. source. And it and it makes sense suddenly why Foy has tried to repress these tapes. It's less about yeah. a sort of social justice and, and more you get the sense that he does not want to be seen in this particular role. Probably not. Yeah. And also... Um, you know, there's probably some trauma associated yeah, for sure. with, with it um, as well, too. Yeah, I mean, like, big idea, big ideas in a relatively compact book. Uh, rambling, funny, yeah. confusing. Um, you know, I, yeah. the place I wanted to start last time, it, the, the last time we talked, you know, we, like, you can't read this book without talking about um, a modest proposal, um, you know, mm. and again, this idea of like a deeply ironic and satirical text. Um, and you pointed out last time, like, there isn't much in here sort of like Swift's ridiculous counter proposal of the like, let no person propose things such as feeding the poor or <laughs> right. educating and clothing them effectively. And like, it's just this wonderful you know, straw man, but is actually like what he's campaigning for. Uh, did you experience any of those in the, this second half of the book? Was there a little bit more, was there more meat on the bones in terms of the satire? Because the feeling I got from you last time was like, well, this is cool, but like, it doesn't quite drive towards a real, a real statement. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think it's the question. Yeah here and um i don't think there is a equivalent of swift saying let no one say that we ought to you know spend less money on you know ridiculous clothes and and actually clothe and feed the poor and find gainful employment i don't think there is a version of that i mean the equivalent of the modest proposal here is let's resegregate the schools right and and the only outcome of resegregating the schools is it, it seems, I don't know, I mean, this seems to me like a little bit of a plot weakness because there's a sort of implied growing racial consciousness around the people in Dickens. Maybe or not. I mean, it gets them back on the weather map, but it, it doesn't really seem to have any particular effect. And it also seems kind of absurd. 
Um, I do think, though, you know, you one of the things you raised earlier before we started the conversation of this question of what is black, which is asked several times, particularly in the last three chapters mm-hmm. uh, in the Supreme Court scene. So I do actually think the book is doing a rhetorical thing, but I don't I wouldn't say it's an argument. I think actually what I think the book is doing is I think it's raising a question. Yeah. Um, and the the modest proposal of resegregating the schools. I don't know. I actually suspect that there it is expressing. I don't know. It's expressing some ambivalence about about whether what we call integration is always a good thing yeah. for certain communities, you know. And if you think about um, gentrification, is clearly a negative force in this novel as such. And if you think about it, what we call gentrification. There's a moment in the process of gentrification where it could look a lot like integration, yeah. <laughs> too. Um, and so I think I think I think what's happening is the categories are being played with in an interesting way. But I don't necessarily sense a profound argument. I mean, I see you have a question here about the book's primary rhetorical goal towards the end. Yeah, uh, I, I could talk about that now because um, I have a thought about it, and it's sort of. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about what's the answer to your question from from your perspective? Well, you, I mean, you just said something that like really helped. Like you were talking about the moment of gentrification where there's like a point where it looks like integration. And it's kind of like the old cliche about a, clo- a broken clock is right <laughs> twice right. a day. And so you could say the same thing in the process of segregation, that there's right. this like moment in between when it looks like integration but actually it's not because like like because of the trajectory right the trajectory is like a real move towards towards separation in both cases and there there are some real positives that happen in dickens because of the segregation the buses suddenly get a lot safer kids are going yeah. to do their homework on the buses there's no gang warfare um, the school perform is starting to perform better. And there's this really funny moment when he's like, if you extrapolated out this growth, Dickens high school or Chaff middle school was going to be the fourth highest performing middle school in the nation within, you know, 18 months or something like that. Um, and, but there are some actual gains, like there's like a lift in the graduation rate and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think you're I think you're right that this this book is mostly asking a big question. Um I think the big rhetorical thrust of the novel is that all integration did and also this like there's sort of this fantasy of a like post-racial world. Mm-hmm. And when the narrator's being arrested, he asks the cops, he's like hey, it's illegal to shout fire in a, in a movie theater, right? And the cop says, yeah. And the narrator says, well, I've just been saying racism in a post-racial world. Hmm. And like the characters like Foy Cheshire sort of stand in for this like cleaned up appearance, of like a cleaned yeah. up black experience. And all that integrate, I think what Paul Beatty is saying is that all integration has gotten us it sort of forced the racism underground, which mm-hmm. is a worse place for it to be 
maybe than out in the open. It's a hard case to make when like there are fewer lynchings now <laughs> than there were before. <laughs> but then you could also make an argument that like lynchings are now, you know, simply like police sponsored. Um, and so maybe that's another, maybe that's another kind of thing that he's saying, but that's, that's yeah. kind of where I'm arriving is that this, this, what he's trying to do is expose the fact that this post race idea is a total farce and in fact has made things maybe even worse. You know, there's the black sorority girl oh my God. who observes at one point that and it, the narrator asks her, is there is there racism everywhere? And she says, there's racism everywhere except one place. And then basically says when the black president and his family walked across the White House lawn during the after the inauguration. Yeah. You know, so essentially the post-racial ideal lived for about three minutes yeah. in America. And I remember that day, you know, <laughs> uh, at least I mean, he doesn't say who the black president is, but. We've only had one um, in this particular world. Um, you know, it's kind of like the Italian justice uh, yeah. and the black justice um, that that some of these illusions are vague, um, but they are still specific, um, you, you know, you, just because there's only one person who fits, uh, at least in the real world. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about it that way. I definitely think the idea of a post-racial world is being satirized. And if you think about the timing, mm -hmm. 2015, you know, I think part of maybe a little bit of a, a thought that I've had about this book as I've been reading it, there's some part of me that's like, yeah, I get it. It's we're, it, we're living in a racist world. Yeah, I know. I know, man. You just feels like we just keep driving this idea home over and over again. I get it. I get it. But the notion of the post-racial America was much more profoundly with us and believed in 2015 mm -hmm. than it is today. Um, Laquan McDonald in Chicago was shot in 2015. I want to say Eric Garner, 2014. Michael Brown, 2014. These were sort of Trayvon Martin a few years 12, earlier, maybe. I think. 12 or yeah. 13, but that... It really wasn't until a few years after that. Um, I mean, with, you know, the Laquan McDonald story in Chicago broke in 2016, and then you start having the Black Lives Matter movement, and then you have uh, Philando Castile and a few of these other events, and then we have COVID, and then that summer, and I guess it was the it was the other one. It was Derek Chauvin and. Um, George Floyd that mm. really blew the lid off it and I really blew the lid off it to the point where like you know many sort of like post-racial kind of like moderate Republican types I knew started being you know started acknowledging that there was a problem <laughs> you know like this is this is a problem you know like it, it became really really obvious and you know like I, I will cop to being somewhat swept up in the post-Obama post-racial optimism of that period you know I was at that inauguration and it sure felt hopeful mm, yeah and it sure felt like we had taken a step forward and you know I was out there it was a really cold day in Washington, D.C., and there were Republicans there, and half the people were black, and half the people were white, and everybody was mingled together, and it felt, it felt real. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think 
you know, to your point, there is less lynching. You know that 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 there. I would argue that there is an arc of justice, as Martin Luther King says. But often it's you know two steps forward, one step back, and and I think you know in 2015 we might have been closer to the two steps forward, and in 2024 we're a lot closer to one or two steps back. And so so some of the ideas of this book don't seem probably as profound. Mm-hmm or as shocking as they would have. And in the even it even felt feels to me often like he's sort of laying it on a bit thick. Like I'm kinda of like, yeah, I get it, Paul Beatty. Like racism sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like um, and I mean that's not really a complaint. I'm just I'm just describing totally. my own intellectual experience of of feeling it. So I mean I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, and if if I think if you were to ask me what I think it's about, I also think like there's that scene not quite at the very end, but close to it, where he does a flashback to going to one of the comedy nights at the Dum Dum Donuts. And sort of typical of Paul Beatty, he starts about ruminating how there are like no black, funny black comics anymore. And then there are funny black comics, but none of them are fat. And then he starts describing a bunch of fat white comics. And then he's like, if there was a fat black comic, America would be terrified. But then he remembers a counterexample, a really funny fat black comic. And then he describes a few of his jokes, which don't seem funny to me, <laughs> just like your mama jokes and welfare jokes. And I, I wasn't sure, like, are we supposed to think they're funny or I, I don't know. But then he describes this moment. And this is one of my favorite pieces of writing in the entire book. Um, actually, I have a I have a part pulled from it yeah. let me see if i can if i find i find it um so this black comic is at the dum dum social club comedy open mic night and there are a couple of white people there and he starts telling the white people that they need to leave and at first it's one of those things that happen sort of andy kaufman like where the white people think this is just a joke like hey get out of here and everybody's like, no i'm serious get out of here no i'm serious get out of here and and it goes silent and the white people realize, no, he's not joking. And they're asking them, he's asking them to leave. And nobody in the audience who are probably black and Latino are standing up for them. And so they kind of get, get up and shuffle off. And the narrator has this moment where he says, you know, I didn't really agree with kicking them out. And, but, um, I, and I wish I had stood up and, and said something about it. Um, but I was too afraid. And then I'll, I'll do the reading. Um, you know, he says, silence can either be protest or con- uh, uh, consent. Um, and he says, but mostly it's because I'm afraid. He's talking about why he didn't say anything. Afraid of what I might say, what promises and threats I might make and have to keep. That's what I liked about the man meeting the comedian. Although I didn't agree with him when he said, get out. This is our thing. I respected that he didn't give a fuck. But I wish I hadn't been so scared that I had had the nerve to stand up and protest, not to castigate him for what he did or to stick up for the aggrieved white people. After all, they could have stood up for themselves, called in the authorities of their God and smote everybody in the place. But I wish I'd stood up to the man and asked him a question. So what exactly is our thing? I th- and that's the end of the chapter. I think that sentence is like, like I mean, there's several hearts of this novel, but that is one of the nodes for sure. Um, because like this is a novel based on questions, like the question that the narrator's dad asks when he is trying to talk down black men who are in danger of doing harm to themselves or others, is uh, basically who are you and who are you becoming? Um, right. And what is our thing is is basically the same question. 
of like, what is it that we are doing here? Um, why are we here? And what do we do with it now that we are here? And a little bit prior to that, the narrator is sitting on the steps of the Supreme Court. I think he's smoking some more weed through a Pepsi can and um, looking out at the night sky and kind of making an observation about Washington, D.C. And his lawyer, Hampton Fisk, who's sort of a Johnny Cochran-like character, uh, has just uh, enumerated uh, three levels of blackness, which we learn um, he has cribbed from the narrator's father, Mr. F.K. Me. Uh, may he rest in peace, the motherfucking genius, or something like that. Um, and, the, you know, the third level of blackness to sort of skip, cut to the chase, are people like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, and, and included are some non-black people like Sitting Bull, but essentially Gandhi, like, like people who are standing up for uh, equality um, and for social justice. And then the narrator has this little reverie where he thinks to himself, there should be a fourth level of blackness, unmitigated blackness. And he lists all of these examples, including... You know, Marcus Garvey, uh, some civil rights people, but also some people who aren't even black, like Ichiro Suzuki, the baseball player, and Bjork, uh, (laughs) wonderfully. And from what I can tell, what all of these people have in common is that they are just impossibly, perfectly, unmitigatingly themselves. Yes, yes, 100%. And, And that is what our character finds almost impossible. Yeah. That that, you know, Foy, Cheshire, Hominy are both extremes of the same struggle that our narrator has. I mean, there's another moment. I mean, I have this one ready that I could read, too. Um, there are a number of moments, including the time in the very beginning where his father forces him to pick the white Barbies or the black Barbies. And he picks the white Barbies because they have better gear, yeah. uh, which, you know, they do have better gear. And, you know, there's another moment where he ref- I won't read you the whole quote, but he reflects to himself that he would rather have D- Darth Vader as a father because like at least Darth Vader was white and he's left-handed anyway so <laughs> losing his right arm having his father cut his right arm would not be a, as equivalent to the damage his father did to him both by being born black but also by the sort of child abuse that he went through and so our narrator has told us several times that he's uncomfortable with his own blackness yeah and by extension that yep. every black person is is forced to be yep. uncomfortable with their own blackness i mean the the, the number of times the phrase cooning comes up yeah. in here, you know, of like having to pretend to be a different kind of black um, is just endemic to not just the experience of people who are black, but everybody else of, of Latinos and Native Americans. And it's yeah, I, I think it's a really powerful moment about like we don't get to be ourselves. And it's, I mean, I think one of the things that's uncomfortable about reading the novel is that we're drawn into this character's consciousness. He can never escape his racial identity. And I think as white people, we can sometimes escape our racial identity. It's uncomfortable in moments when, like, I feel like I'm reminded of my whiteness, you know, because it's often 
in situations related to privilege or guilt or not fully understanding the cultural context or something. And I don't, you know, that's an uncomfortable feeling, but this guy feels that all the time. Yeah. He's constantly navigating it. And, you know, and, and this is a thing that I think that happens to people who are traumatized by any experience and racism is a traumatic experience. It's almost like you're the Afghanistan veteran who has to bring the service dog into the supermarket to pop the aisle um, because you're not sure whether there's a Taliban person on the other side yeah. of the aisle or not. Now, there probably isn't, right? Um, the odds are that there's not somebody there with an IED or a gun waiting to kill you. But I think the trauma of that experience enforces a kind of unwilling paranoia so that even things that are, quote unquote, not about race mm -hmm. become about race. Paul Beatty narrates the consciousness of that in a really profound, sometimes funny, sometimes sad, always uncomfortable yeah. way. And it's exhausting. You know, it's exhausting to immerse in. And fortunately, there are enough laughs and enough little moments that you can you can derive some pleasure from reading the book. But I mean, I think I think that's what the book is doing. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately its rhetorical purpose. I've got, I've got a, a short reading that sort of picks up on what you were just talking about. Basically, like, you know, our experience of, of being white and like being able to escape that discomfort a lot of the time and that black people are less or non-whites are much less able to. But um, yeah, this is on page 261. Um, Daddy never believed in closure. He said it was a mm. false psychological concept. Something invented by therapists to assuage white Western guilt. In all his years of study and practice, he'd never heard a patient of color talk of needing closure. They wanted revenge. They needed <laughs> distance. Forgiveness and a good lawyer, maybe, but never closure. He said people mistake suicide, murder, lap band surgery, interracial marriage, and overtipping for closure, when in reality what they've achieved is erasure. Hmm. And I think that's the... That's the sort of the, that's the post-racial argument, you know, is that like generally people are aiming to be like, oh, I want to like step beyond all this, this race stuff, but not stepping beyond it. They sort of want it gone. Yeah. And I think what what Paul Beatty is trying to do with this book is be like, no, it is not gone. Here are all of the ways in which it is like present and really messed up and maybe as bad as pre-desegregation. Um, yeah, it's a really, I, I think it's a really, it's a really impressive rhetorical goal. It's interesting too, because like Hominy and Foy are both messed up. But I think if you look at the tone of voice with regard to each character, it's act that, that, that Hominy is actually kind of like, there, he has a sort of like, almost kind of like coyote, brer rabbit, trickster quality. To, to It's like he's taking the oppressor's tool and then kind of reformulating it through by means of sexual kink and terribly racist jokes yeah. into something that gives him pleasure. Whereas, in, so in a way, Hominy's kind of wallowing in the pain is kind of maybe presented as healthier than Foy's suppression. Mm -hmm whitewashing of the whole thing and it's foy who loses his head in the end and goes crazy and it's hominy who ends up you know 
hanging out with the gangsters at the end and then they all have this solemn moment where they you know they sort of pay respects to him and like what he's gone through yeah uh and yeah i I think that reinforces the idea as well which is like there's no closure we can't put this behind it we have to find a way to live with it and the goal is to live with it in total comfort, you know, which is what stage four blackness, unmitigating blackness people have figured out how to do. And by the way, like these people, many of whom are, are flawed, but it's sort of like the comedian in the club who tells the white people to leave. Uh, the narrator doesn't agree with him, but appreciates that he's a hundred percent his authentic self yeah. in that moment. He's saying exactly what he wants. He wants the white people to leave and he's not afraid to say it. What's your question here about characters and affinity? I just wonder, do you find yourself invested in our narrator's story in the plot sense? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yes, but <laughs> I, I've, I've wanted to figure out what happens pretty much the whole book. But like some of the books that we've read where we aren't given quite enough nibbles at like a a real plot um, that it does. I think uh, this is one of those like challenging things where I don't think you could take much away from this book if it was going to still succeed in what it's trying to do. Mm. But there are whole chapters where I'm like, this did not move the plot forward. This moved the ideas forward. And also, he's he's more engaged in world building than he is in plot development, which is totally fine. Um, but I I really like this narrator. I love his tone of... I love the way he speaks. I love the way that he thinks about things. Um I really enjoy him, but, and I wanted to know what happened in the Supreme Court, but there wasn't quite enough pulling me forward from like a plot sense. And like, it wasn't, it's not until we sort of like bump into the black sorority girl um, and we get a real lead on where the tapes might be that like we, we sort of get that like nudge into a plot. Um, and even that, even that little side adventure, they go to Foy's house and Hominy and the girl go in and the narrator sort of wanders off into the park and a, a little like a little slightly unbelievably bumps into Foy like a like a mile or two away, like hanging out in a park in his car. And maybe it's not too unbelievable because it's near his house, but it just and I was like, Okay, we didn't like I thought we were going to go to the house and like dig through the house and find the tapes and, you know, and that whole thing. And instead we get another sort of set piece. I don't know what which in your brain, whether you graph plot on a vertical axis and world building on a horizontal axis or vice versa. But let's say plot is vertical and world building is horizontal. This is a very short, very fat book. It's, it's, you know, it's something like a giant pancake. Yeah. You know, like a, like a 22-foot-wide pancake. You've just reminded uh, me of the line from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, and, and this also, you know, like, 
one of the joys of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is that you don't have to identify which says which because it doesn't matter. Uh, right. But one of them says, I feel like we should do something productive. And the other one says, what did you have in mind? A short, blunt human pyramid? <laughs> <laughs> and you've just sort of described that, except it's not like just two yeah. people. It's like a lot of people in a line. I love that visual image of graphing this novel. Yeah, well, they're both kind of metafiction. I mean, I'll just like, I agree with you that the it, it actually the MacGuffin it really does help, you know, and it's a cheap, simple device, but th that actually really creates the only real narrative yearning and structure. To me, the desegregation, it just to me feels like a big joke. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really buy, I don't think, and I don't think Paul Beatty means to suggest, maybe he does, that, that sort of resegregating the schools that way would have the effects they have in the novel. To me, it just all seems like, provocative and sort of designed to kind of make to kind of make the our point that our character is tilting at some kind of windmill yeah you know that 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 it, it is it's a quixotic novel right oh, yeah, like totally. it, and 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 he even has his sidekick right like his kind of you know wise foolish sidekick and and um so i just don't buy that you know i and and i don't his re relationship to Marpesa is so like difficult to track and hard to understand. And she's married to um, Panache. Panache, who is the gangster rapper turned uh, TV actor who sounds a lot like Ice T. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, and you're so you're sort of like, but he's supposed to be friends with Panache, but he's sleeping with his wife. So, or how are we supposed to feel about that? And is that just like a stereotype about like black sexuality that he's surfacing and blowing up? Or are we supposed to take all this seriously? I don't really understand the relationship to the gangsters. Like they seem like stereotypical characters to me. There's one really funny moment when King Cuz. Um, says something like, yeah, I understand why Foy Cheshire would be so fucked up. If I had that on my conscience, it would mess me up too. Uh, and I kill people for no reason for a living. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it does seem like a wonderful, wonderfully metafiction you know, sort of metafictional observation that he makes about himself. But like, I don't know, are those characters supposed to be kind of like the boys in the hood that are likable? Or are they supposed to be stereotypes of gangsters i don't quite understand what they're doing and so the plot is so thin as to just i it didn't invest me at all and i really only the only value i took from the book came from just moments of brilliant flourishes and then then i think what i was articulating to you earlier which i probably didn't even really figure out until today earlier i finished the book today and then i went and back and reread parts of it and I was on a long bike ride listening to it and particularly some of those moments in those last few chapters like watching the little rascals tapes the black comedian the courtroom scene the unmitigating blackness there's just some really powerful moments and I think those are the moments where there's even a moment where Paul Beatty says unmitigating blackness is essay disguised as fiction <laughs> and you're like yeah yep. <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah I mean it's a it's a hyper real novel like it's mm. it's like it's like when you take a photograph and just jack the saturation like all right, the way sure. up, yeah. you know, like everything in this novel is like like, yes, there is a lot of stereotype. And then he just leans on it and keeps turning it up. 
And then, you know, your sort of get out of jail card free with anything like that, where you take a stereotype, is that there is always some truth in cliche. <laughs> it's the reason why things are cliche. And the interesting that he, the interesting thing that he does with it is that he does just like crank it. And from that place of be of, of hyper realism, because I don't think he's actually like climbing under the table in the Supreme Court to try to smoke right. a joint. And, you know, it, it, his case also would not have gone to the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it I mean, we said this last time, like this is it is um, it. it it's it the it's it's um it's farcical right like the the plot is farcical the characters are farcical everything is turned up to thirteen yeah. they're like you know spinal taps for wimps We're <laughs> <down> to <13. laughs> yeah totally and it's I think part of that is I th I think you know to to sort of get in Paul Beatty's court here for a bit is that because the problems he is dealing with are so intractable and so yeah. complex. And you can see him really trying to deftly thread this needle of like complexity and also like you got to write the damn book. Like you, you can't just like talk about this forever and be like, I've got all these ideas. You, you eventually have to write something that hangs together. And I think his way through is like, okay, we just make everybody kind of a bit of a stereotype and crank it to 13. And then that way I don't have to make these characters real, complex, fully alive characters. Yeah. Because then I think the, the, the novel would be A, too long, too confusing, and it would sort of fall apart because you would spend your whole time trying to reconcile the the magnitude of the ideas with the fact that you're still having to draw, you know, realistic, conflicted um, humans. And so yeah. we're, we're, we're more in like Greek tragedy world. Yeah. Or every man. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. It, 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 it is. It is like sort of allegory. And there's another, you know, there's that digression that the narrator has this bit too, where he's like, what does offended feel like? Like, I know what happy feels like. I know what sad feels like. I know what angry feels like, but what does offended feel like and i think again this is part of that you hear racist language in this book or you read so much of it and you know it's like i don't stop wincing you know it always and, and it always hurts and i think part of what paul Beatty is saying and certainly the narrator is saying is that like it's kind of what you were getting at earlier with surfacing is that it's better to hear the language. Like, let's crank it up and yep. listen to it. Like, like white people using the phrase the N word instead of the actual word might represent a minuscule amount of racial progress. But real racial progress would be white people like letting us in on the American dream, you know, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like, right. and, and, yeah. and, you know, I kind of feel like Paul Beatty's point is like, yeah, let Mark Twain use the N word all he wants to like, like cut us in on the deal. I don't care how you talk, right. you know, like, like, let's do some cooning humor, you know, let's um, I mean, and, and this was another thing, though, too. Actually, here's another question for you. Maybe this would be my last question is. So many of the racist jokes and set pieces are kind of laid out for us, sometimes by Hominy, sometimes by the narrator. Um, there's Hominy's joke about the black baby who falls in white flower and then has this interaction with his parents, which he then repeats in Spanish. Um, then there's also some of the, you know, the, the last reels of the little rascals 
I mean, the the the, the one that particularly struck me was oil tie oh my, hyphen coons. Oh my God. And <laughs> which the the plot is that the little rascals discover that buckwheat has a lot more money than they would expect. And I think buckwheat's being generous with it. He's like buying them yeah, candy they're all and wearing, stuff. They're all wearing they're, top hats and tails. <laughs> yeah, they're wearing top hats and tails. And they try to figure out, and you know, forgive me, um, listener, for the dialogue, but I feel like you need it to understand. First, he claims to have won the Irish lottery by finding a four-leaf clover, which is a bit of a salty joke. And then he finally admits, uh, wheeze in oil. And the gang go to the black quarter of town, which is rendered in much less delicate language, and find that a bunch of young black boys have been hooked up to IVs where oil is being extracted um, in the form of their blood, uh, and that buckwheat is uh, selling that oil and becoming a magnet yeah. tycoon, which, which is... So horrifically racist, yeah. but also kind of so absurd as to be funny. And it did start, it, it started to make me wonder why do you think the author is indulging, is, is spinning out so many mm-hmm. of these racist jokes? Why are we. Why are we hearing, reading so many of them in such great detail? And And also, I believe. Yes, there was terrible racist stuff, stuff like this, like in movies and TV and, and, and other. And there probably still is. At one point, he says, I haven't seen anything so racist since like something, something, something or turning on ESPN today. But but I mean, I think I think the the oil tycoons set piece is a ratcheting up. I don't yeah. think Little Rascals was ever that horrifically racist. Uh, there's another one where they find an old uh, uh um, Nazi doctor who tries to poison buckwheat, but the gang foils him, which if, you know, arguably is anti-racist, but still um, it, it does seem to be sort of playing with it. And and I don't know, I came to suspect that maybe on some level the author has a little bit of whatever, whatever condition uh, Hominy is dealing mm-hmm. with, with regard to this, that on some, in some small way, that there might even be some pleasure mm-hmm. in excising these stories. But I, th- I think, you know, like my my case here is going to be for the fact that like the specious arguments made um, for a, a post-racial society in America and the whataboutisms and the this happens on both sides and the Blue Lives Matter bullshit um, – that what is going, what Paul Beatty is reverting to is like, okay, I guess it wasn't enough that we were imprisoned for, you know, hundreds of years. And like, this is, this is piling up the cocaine and illegal money, money laundered on the evidence table. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Like (laughs) we're like assembling the evidence. Yeah. I mean, because forcing the jury to look at it. Because of that passage about what white people want is is erasure and what black people want is is revenge. Um, And I think that he's doing this. He's he just keeps putting he just keeps putting our nose in it which I yeah. like heartily applaud him for it, it. It is uncomfortable. There are moments where you're just like, Oh, I don't want to say these words again. Um, but I think 
it's the response of a part of society that could be forgiven for throwing up their hands. And mm-hmm. I think that Paul Beatty is trying to be like, like, no, God damn it. <laughs> like, like, here are all of the ways that mm. um, like, and it's just, and it's part of like building this, like this horrible tapestry of the United States. Um, mm. And, and, but I, I, you know, I get it. And I, I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here um, because I, I hear you. Yeah. Like this is a novel that is, less about plot and more about idea. Um, and some of the other books we've read deal with that tension a little, with a little bit more storytelling success as, as a piece of like writing and sort of imaginative chutzpah. And I, I really did enjoy it. This is really good. Like, um, but I'm, I'm going away from it being like, more just like respectful of Paul Beatty's like considerable talents. Um, and very happy that I've read it for this perspective. It's really made me reconsider the ways that I am complicit in the, um, even though I think, you know, a lot of us try our best. Um, but there's, there's a lot of stuff that like, I just can't get around as like Mm. a white male American. It, yeah. I mean, I can't argue with that point. Um, I mean that that's just that's just true. I think that, say, the Intuitionist or Parable of the Sower. I think they maybe land their ideas more effectively with me because of the storytelling element. Mm-hmm. That this is, I don't know that I would have gotten through this book if we hadn't been doing it for the podcast. And so, A, that's why it's good to do podcasts about books or book clubs or try to get into an MFA program or take a literature class because sometimes that social dimension to reading will force you, push you through something that's not pulling you through with a plot or characters that you care about. And that reward. I think the reward in this case is twofold, and one is the necessary discomfort of the oppressive consciousness of being black in America is something that we all, we white people all should experience from time to time. Yeah. And then two, there are just some really profound sentences and paragraphs and moments. Uh, I will stick with my idea that I suggested last time that it is a brilliant mess Um, I don't think it is a masterfully constructed novel. Uh, I think it is more like the phrase we came up with Neil Stevenson's first novel. I think there's kind of like a fire hose of talent that has been applied unevenly throughout the novel. There's like a structure of a novel and then he just kind of hosed it down with this rather amazing gift. Yeah. Um, and it's not at all surprising to me that he's a poet because it, it is, in a way, it is like a giant epic poem. It's like an assemblage of poems with a little bit of pop plot glue holding it yeah, together. Yeah, he, he, um, he plays really fast and loose with time. You know, there's like time, six weeks passed, four months passed. Yeah, like, uh, you know. Um, plausibility, stakes. Um, I mean, all of those things. There is a plot, yeah. right? There is a, a the structure to the story. I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I think it the, the book is sort of structured like a nightmare. 
You know, it doesn't it doesn't really have the logic that we append to the real world. It ha- it has sort of the weird logic, the sketchy logic of a dream. And yeah. that is helpful in some places and and pretty and pretty not helpful in others. Um I, I really agree with you on that front. Well, and and I think the counter argument might be perhaps that the disjointedness of the novel mimics the disjointedness of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And that kind of oppressive consciousness and ambivalence about identity and discomfort with one's assigned racial identity probably feels disjointed like that. So there is an argument that you could say that it's perhaps masterfully disjoined. Maybe. I don't think that's <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I don't think I don't buy that argument. Yeah. But I think it's possible. I I think it's more a like an assemblage of brilliant moments. Yeah. But the assemblage itself is not as masterful as some of the moments. Yeah, I think in terms of the scope and the ambition and the writing and just the daring do yeah. Like firmly launches this book into a a, a place of, of real importance um, beyond perhaps the craft of the, the structuring of the novel. Well, and, you know, like if if Paul Beatty's narrator hasn't achieved unmitigated blackness, like I feel like this novel does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's a great. For sure. OK, so this reading um the, one of the things that he and Hominy does is go to uh, the local the local <laughs> hospital, which is uh, which is called Martin Luther Martin Luther Killer, Killer King, <laughs> King Jr. Hospital, uh, which is which he also points out that sometimes people would get worse injuries on the way to the hospital. Hospitals don't have the rainbow of directional lines anymore. In the days of butterfly bandages, sutures that didn't dissolve, and nurses without accents. The admitting nurse would hand you a manila folder and you'd follow the red line to radiology, the orange to oncology, the purple to pediatrics. But at Killer King, sometimes an emergency room patient tired of waiting to be seen by a system that never seems to care and holding a plastic cup with a severed finger swimming in long since melted ice or staunching the bleeding with a kitchen sponge. Sometimes out of sheer boredom, they'll slip over to the glass partition and ask the triage nurse, where does that brackish colored line lead to? The nurse will shrug, and unable to ignore the curiosity, they set out to follow a line that took Hominy and me all night to paint, and half the next day to make sure everyone obeyed the wet paint signs. It's a line that it's as close to the yellow brick road as the patients will ever get. Though there's a touch of cornflower blue in the shade, Pantone 426C is a strange, mysterious color. I chose it because it looks either black or brown, depending on the light, one's height, and one's mood. And if you follow the three-inch wide stripe out of the waiting room, you'll crash through two sets of double doors, make a series of sharp lefts and rights through a maze of patient-strewn corridors, and then down three flights of filthy, unswept stairs until you come to a dingy inner vestibule lit by a dim red bulb. There, the painted line pitchforks into three prongs, each time leading to the threshold of a pair of unmarked, identical double doors. The first set of doors leads to a back alley, the second to the morgue, and the third to a bank of soda pop and junk food vending machines. I didn't solve the racial and class inequalities in healthcare, but I'm told patients who travel down the brown-black road are more proactive. 
that when their names are finally called, the first thing they say to the attending physician is, Doctor, before you treat me, I need to know one thing. Do you give a fuck about me? I mean, hmm. do you really give a fuck? Well. Ugh. Uh, okay, so uh, let me get my notes together. Okay, so as you probably guessed, I was rather taken uh, with the uh, both Fisk and then later the narrator's uh, levels of blackness digression and the notion of unmitigated uh, blackness. I think part of it was that it didn't make any sense to me at first, and I read it again and did a little research, and then it started making a little more sense. Um, and so one of the he lists a number of names of people who represent unmitigated blackness. And one of those names was uh, Donald Goins, which was a name I had never heard before. Uh, so I looked up Donald Goins. Donald Goins was a black writer uh, born in the 30s, died in the ne- in the 1970s. And he wrote um novels with mostly black protagonists who are mostly read by black americans um you know kind of a niche audience um and much of his work was influenced by his reading of a famous autobiography and so your job is going to be the name the famous autobiography that inspired donald goines one of the examples of unmitigated blackness in the sellout uh, was that memoir? <laughs> Listeners, I am crossing both fingers, hoping beyond hope that my seventh. You might be able to. My, you might be able to think your way. My eighteenth century Brit lit class will come to my aid here. <laughs> well, just keep in mind. See, this is a twentieth century writer. Uh, yeah. But um, um, was that memoir a the autobiography of Malcolm X? B Pimp: The Story of My Life by Iceberg Slim. Or C, Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. And I was considering coming up with a sort of black version of Ringworld as an autobiography, but I couldn't come up with but you were like, I'm, that wasn't inappropriate. Right, yeah, was like, after, after my brain has been poisoned by all the little rascal jokes and things like that, I didn't trust myself to do that in a way that was not yeah, that makes uh, sense. horrific. I, I think the autobiography of Malcolm X for a writer that died in the seventies strikes me as perhaps coming too late. So the third option was black like me. What was the second option? The second option uh, was pimp colon the story of my life by iceberg slim. I'm going to go with black like me. It is B pimp story of my life by iceberg slim. Um, I think what would have maybe helped you with this if you had known that Black Like Me is a famous piece of immersive undercover journalism in which a white person wears blackface oh, in wow. the 1950s South and then reports on what it's like to be treated as a black person okay, that by like the white authorities. A lot of sense. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that, but um, I now I want to I want to know more about that now. And well, and Pimp is a famous book. Iceberg Slim influenced a lot of like the early generation of gangster rappers, mm-hmm. and um, it's lurid, but also apparently vivid in its description of certain things nice. and influential. Well, uh, my my short little streak comes to an end, I think, but yeah. uh, that's okay. Um, so baseball is a game of streaks. It is a game of streaks. Oh, I'm so excited to talk uh, to have for that interview in March. That's going to be really oh really yeah. Fun. Um, oh yeah. 
When was the last school in the United States finally desegregated? Mm. A, 1965. B, 1981. C, 2016. And D, there is still a segregated school in a suburb of Wichita, Kansas. By, and by segregated, you don't just mean that it happens to be no, all no, white. No, no, it, no. It's like a, there's like a code of, there, a was, there was like a policy of segregation. In Wichita, Kansas. That is, that is D. There is still a segregated school in a suburb of Wichita, Kansas. Wow. Uh, 1965, 1981, 2016, segregation is ongoing. Those are your four choices. Well, I know it's after 1965, because in Virginia, we had massive resistance, Mm -hmm. um, which lasted well into the 1970s and maybe even to the 1980s, um, which would be astounding to me because I was alive then. But um, uh, 2016, I'm going to go 2016. I mean, I don't think you could hold out against the Supreme Court and popular opinion until 2016. Also, the fact that Wichita, Kansas, I guess it's not Topeka, Kansas, where the Brown case happened, but uh, I, I, I don't know. That would be very, very strange. So I'm going to guess 1981. Okay. I'm going to read you uh, an article uh, that will, or I'm going to read you a chunk of the article that will give you a right. section. Uh, Cleveland Central High School is the latest attempt after years of litigation to desegregate Mississippi school districts. The town of Cleveland, home to 12,000 people, hosts tiny Delta State University and the Grammy Museum, a 27,000 square foot facility in the birthplace of the blues. In the center of town, a tree dotted promenade sits where the train tracks once split Cleveland in two. Whites lived on the west side, African Americans on the east side, and the town's schools long reflected that divide. As a result, in May 2016, a federal judge ordered the town to merge its two high schools. Wow. Yep. The district, wow. the district, get this, the district appealed the ruling. <laughs> now, wait, so, but it, it was, the school didn't have an overt no black children policy. They, they just basically drew the districts for the two schools exactly where the white people and the black people lived, which is a de facto form of De facto, and then the east side school was 100% black. There was not a single, de- like, there, there was no departure from its 100% blackness. Um, oh, and, uh, and, and there was a, a, very, there was a 57-year legal battle to get the schools desegregated. The course was the... the, the um, the case was opened in the 60s, um, and there's this great part of the article which talks about the 57-year-old woman who, like, instigated the case, you know, when she was 12 or something like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I thought I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I was in Chicago, and the schools are heavily segregated there, not by legal policy, but just by the fact that the city is so residentially segregated yeah. historically. And that and that segregation used to be enforced by informal and sometimes formal, but often informal violence, harassment and stuff like that into the 70s and 80s and 90s. And now I don't think that's the case anymore. Um, but it's enforced by real estate lending practices. Well, we should just mention real quick, this is coming up in a few weeks, but we just uh, we made a plan to do a digression coming up 
pretty soon, probably after this episode comes out, but not much after, before uh, baseball season starts, a digression of baseball films with the host of the Historians at the Movies podcast, Jason Herbert. Cool. Um, I'm super excited about this episode. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. So listen for that. Uh, That is coming up. Uh, Chris Bagg, will you read the sellout again? I don't think so, but I'm going to keep it close to my desk. Um, And uh, mostly because I want to stay close to the level of language. Um, I, I, I really, I, 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 I really enjoyed this. Um, I didn't have a trouble getting through it. Um, mostly because like, I love linguistic hijinks crossed with big ideas. <laughs> and so like the lack of plot, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you and we don't need to get into it was like your sense of proximity to the action. I felt mm. as if there was always a sort of scrim between me mm. and what was actually going on that I did not that I don't think is a feature, I think is a bug. Um, and, but as a piece of like, as a piece of just tour de force writing and its ambition, like I'm going to keep it nearby and I'm really happy that I read it. And, um, and I will definitely delve into it in moments of like, uh, I want to just read some amazing sentences. How about you? I mean, I I like your answer about keeping it nearby, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, I do think it even influenced my writing a little bit this week, because some of the sentences are just so good, particularly very, very evocative and specific similes and metaphors, Mm -hmm. uh, analogies. Uh, I don't think I'll read it again. Uh, I did not really enjoy it. I had to push myself through it, and I probably wouldn't have done it if... We hadn't been doing it for this podcast. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad we chose to read it for the podcast because I think I'm enriched by it. And, you know, for the reasons that I said earlier. And if I do read it again, it'll probably be because, like, I might, you know, take a class someday or I might teach a class someday. I could see assigning this book if I were ever teaching Mm -hmm. writing because it is a book that would engender some very, it would, particularly some rather advanced students, I think you could engender some really powerful conversations uh, around writing and craft and race and things like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is one of the things you and I think have discovered about our taste is that like, a good story is very important to me, <laughs> you know, that, and, and I'm not sure that's as true. It would have been as true for me 20 or 25 years ago. Like when I was an 18 or 19 year old, I might've been more interested in a novel of ideas. And I think part of my craft as a, you know, documentary maker and mm-hmm. radio producer over time, I think my affinity for story has grown. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, or maybe, or maybe I'm just more willing to admit that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it makes sense given our sort of like a, like creatively adjacent, but still different paths. Like I was originally trained as a poet and like, yeah. you know, and so like the things that hit for me are linguistic, compl- linguistic complexity, emotional, availability and size and you know plots like <laughs> it's it's like yeah it's fine um right. and, and and yeah i really love a good story i love a good yarn it's very important to me but yeah my sort of like my initial grounding is much more in in the poetry side of things which is different in terms of narrative one's not right. better than the other it's just a different thing yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, what are uh, what are we doing next, JPD? 
We're doing, aren't we doing The Sympathizer we, by uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen? Yep, that is next. Um, the first part. And, you know, interestingly, that book won the Pulitzer the same year that this book won the Man Booker Prize. <laughs> I did. And I believe both of those books were shortlisted for the other, for the other pri- oh, for that the prize sense. that the other won. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of picked, you know, I, I, I was sort of like, ah, let's like get books that were prominent, but also like about other, you know, sort of other, other non-monolithic cultures as much yeah. in the sort of last 15 years. So I'm not surprised that uh, two of them were up for awards. Maybe at some point I'm going to ask you about that title, My Sour Culture, but I think I want more information mm. uh, before I throw that question at you. Yeah, that makes sense. So do we need to rewrite our uh, Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the... I No, I, I did that. Okay, uh, I, I thought so. You can take, I wasn't sure. <laughs> was like, you could take a look at it, yeah. No, no, it's great. Um, well, everybody, thank you for listening. And uh, Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the non-pejorative adventurers and sympathetic European-American raft captains. Music is by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes, design and website by me, Chris Bag. You can learn more about us and find our listener survey at uppermiddlebrow.com. And please review us in your podcast app. It really does help other people find the show. A reminder, uh, Chris and I are both writers and editors and can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. Uh, You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next time. Go paint your fence.